This is a home recording of the sermon preached on the 13th of March, 2022, entitled, When We Care Little About Greatness. The Bible passage for that week is Mark 9, 2-50. If you have yet to read it, please click pause now and read Mark chapter 9, verses 2-50, before continuing to the sermon. When We Care Little About Greatness My dad taught me how to drive when I was 16 years old, and the first two things he required me to learn before he allowed me to put my hands to the steering wheel was firstly, how to wash the car, and secondly, how to change a flat tire. So unless I passed the two prerequisites, dad would not teach me how to drive. So I told my son, as you can see, he had it easy compared to his father. I learned that the first step in Changing a flat tire was to loosen the nuts before jacking up the car. Now, loosening the nuts can be very tricky, not just because the nuts could be tight. The tricky part is to understand that the nuts are reverse nuts. You must turn the nut in reverse, always against the direction the wheel normally turns. So to loosen the nut, one must turn the nut clockwise. To tighten it, counterclockwise because it is a reverse nut now if you find this too difficult to understand just call AA next time you have a flat tire you also find a reverse nut in your electric fan it is the lock that holds the fan blades to the motor axle and that lock is a reverse nut in order to loosen the lock you have to turn it in reverse clockwise and if you want to tighten it you turn counterclockwise reverse nut the kingdom of god is like a reverse nut its values are opposite to the world's what is right to the world in the kingdom of god it is wrong what is wise in the eyes of the world is foolishness in the kingdom in the kingdom of god loss is gain the first last greatness is a smallness because the kingdom of god is like a reverse nut. Now in today's passage, we shall see that the disciples are still learning the kingdom's reverse culture, the kingdom's counter culture. In particular, what it means to be great in God's kingdom. Now when the disciples Peter, James, and John came down with Jesus from the mountain, they found the other nine disciples left below in the midst of an argument with a large crowd and the teachers of the law. Now, we have already learned uh, some things about arguments, about fights and quarrels. Fights and quarrels are symptoms of a heart issue. They reveal a hidden desire that battles in the heart. James tells us that you want something, but you do not get it. And so you quarrel and fight. So why is there road rage? Well, it's because you want the right of way, but you do not get it. You want the parking lot, but you do not get it. Why are there arguments on board the train? Because somebody wants the seat, but is not getting the seat. Fights and quarrels betray a heart issue of wanting something, but not getting it. So is there something wanted, but not gotten in the argument here? Well, Jesus asked the crowd, What are you arguing about? Now, Jesus' question is not a question to seek information because Jesus does not 
like knowledge. No, the Son of God asks, rather, to provide opportunity for a heart check, to expose their hearts, so that redemption work can begin. It is sort of like a diagnostic question so that, the, so that one's heart can be diagnosed. What are you arguing with them about? The Lord's diagnostic question was directed too to the disciples. But a man in the crowd answered for the disciples anyway and looked closely at the man's remark. It was a desperate cry for help, but at the same time, it sounded like a complaint. He says, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. He went on to tell what else uh, the spirit would do to his son, cause seizures, throw him to the ground, make him foam at the mouth. There are classic symptoms of an epileptic attack, only that in this case it is not epilepsy. It is a spiritual attack. He says, I asked your disciples, I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. This man reveals the essence of the argument. He badly needed exorcism from Jesus, who was up in the mountain, and the disciples who were left behind failed to exorcise the spirit. That was the essence of the argument, the failure to drive away the demon. Jesus now ex begins his redemption work after the man spills the beans and exposes his heart. Jesus rebukes everybody. O oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? And the Lord pronounces his diagnosis. They all lack faith. Yes, all of them, beginning with a father, the father who brought his son for Jesus to exercise the spirit. But Jesus was incommunicado. He was up in the mountain with the three disciples. And so it seemed that the father had no other choice but sought help from the disciples. You know, I liken him to the patient who hesitantly sees the uh, locum, the uh, temp doc, because the real doctor was away. Did it reveal that the father did not have faith that the authorized disciples could drive out demons by the power of God? If so, the father of the demon-possessed boy betrayed his lack of faith in Jesus' disciples who come in Jesus' name and have been authorized to cast out demons in Jesus' name. The father's lack of faith in Jesus' representatives now extends to Jesus himself. He tells Jesus, If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Verse 22. Here now is Jesus' work of redemption. He replies, If you can, everything is possible for him who believes. Now one must not doubt if Jesus can, if Jesus is able. The Son of God can do all things and nothing is impossible for Him. Everything is possible for Jesus because God is Almighty and He can do the impossible such as casting out the Spirit. He can do the impossible for Him who believes in the sovereign power of God. This is how we must understand Jesus' statement, everything is possible 
for him who believes. It is not one's belief or faith by itself that makes everything possible. This is not the uh, I believe, therefore I can philosophy. It is rather confidence in the omnipotent God and trust in him to act as he sees fit. Everything is possible refers to the power of God. It describes what God can do, that nothing limits him. And then, for he who believes, uh, refers to the object of God's wondrous works, the beneficiary, the recipient of God's powerful deed. Here is an important faith lesson, friends, that we must learn. The sovereign, powerful God is the object of our faith, and we are the objects of his miraculous work, the recipients. So the father, upon learning of this faith lesson, he then exclaims, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Not only does he confess his lack of faith, he confesses too that only Jesus can help him overcome his lack of faith because not only is God the object of our faith, but also the source of our faith. Now, sometimes you and I may face circumstances that tempt us to lose faith in the all-powerful God who is in control of all things. Well, guess who can help us? God himself, the object of our faith. We must run to him and confess our wavering faith and ask of him to help our unbelief because even faith is a gift of his grace. We must not pray, Lord, if you can, or Lord, if you are able. Rather, Lord, if you will. Jesus rebukes and commands the spirit, spirit to leave the boy. The spirit shrieked, shakes the boy through a seizure before leaving him like dead. But Jesus takes the boy by his hand and uh, help him up because everything is possible for him who believes. Well, it is not only the father who lacked faith. Remember, Jesus' diagnostic questions uh, question was aimed at his disciples. Now it becomes clear too that the disciples who were supposed to cast out the spirit, they too did not have faith. Now how do we know this? Well, verse 28, in private, perhaps to avoid public embarrassment, the disciples asked Jesus when no one else is looking. They asked, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus' answer gives us a clue. He says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Is Jesus saying that the disciples have yet to learn the different ways of casting out spirits according to the kind of spirit? Well, I think the focus rather is on the disciples' lack of faith. They did not pray. Did you get that? They did not pray. Well, why didn't they? I suggest two reasons. Firstly, the disciples were authorized by Jesus to cast out demons. They had, in a sense, power in Jesus' name to drive out demons. And they had been doing that, driving out demons. Mark chapter 6, verse 7 tells us that Jesus sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. 
Same chapter, verse 13 tells us, They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. The disciples have so far been successful in driving out demons, aside from performing miraculous healings. Perhaps the success has gotten into their heads that they assume it has become an acquired skill, and they no longer see that their authority is a delegated authority where they must constantly depend upon God prayerfully. So let me ask you, what are some things you do not pray about? Your answer? Uh, many things. The things we do not pray about are things that you believe you are capable of doing without any divine help. And that is one prideful thought that you and I should confess to God. This prideful thought is very real. Now, I must tell you that sometimes I become slack in prayer when I've already finished my sermon manuscript, forgetting that I must pray that God use His servant to preach His word and that His word achieve His purposes. Perhaps the disciples were starting to get proud of their abilities of forgetting that they needed dependence upon God. And so they did not pray. But another possible reason why they did not pray, I think, is this. The lack of prayer was intentional to shine the spotlight upon themselves. The absence of prayer was deliberate so as to make themselves look great. Because prayer makes us look helpless, doesn't it? And lack of prayer makes us look self-sufficient not needing any help. Jesus' answer to the disciples seemed comical to me. He says, this kind, you know, this leveled up demon possession, I mean, just look at what it does. It, it has tried to kill the boy since childhood by burning, by drowning. In all the demon possession, possession incidents in, in Mark, this one kind is the upscale type. Does it require any leveled up skill? No, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Just prayer. Just humble, helpless plea, Jesus tells the disciples. And so we learn that in the kingdom of God, one must seek, one must seek not to be great but helpless and always needing prayer. This kind can come out only by prayer. It may actually mean that the disciples did not even need to cast the Spirit out, for the Spirit would come out only by their humble prayer to God, because in praying, they are acknowledging their helplessness and their need for God's help. This tells us something, friends, that the less we pray, the more we think we are great, that we have gotten everything figure out. But the more we pray, the more we acknowledge that we are small, the more we agree that apart from God's enabling, we can do nothing. Moving on, look at verse 33. When they came to Capernaum, the Lord asked the same diagnostic question again. What were you arguing about on the road? As they all made their way to Capernaum. 
Again, it was not a question seeking information. It was the same diagnostic question to expose their hearts. Nobody wanted to spill the beans. But Jesus knew what the quarrel is about. For he knows what is in the heart of men. It is a shameless quarrel about who is the greatest. Why quarrel about who's the greatest? Well, the trip to the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus took Peter, James, John, it probably made the three feel superior over the rest and made the rest feel inferior and insecure. It is likely, too, that the failed exorcism made them evaluate amongst one another who is skilled and who has failed, who has scored success and who has scored losses. Another possible trigger to the quarrel was Jesus' announcement of his death and resurrection. Though they didn't quite understood it, they like to think it's the restoration of the kingdom of Israel and uh, they imagine what handsome position they will be getting. And later in chapter 10, James and John would shamelessly ask Jesus to reserve two seats for them. What triggered the quarrel is one's guess, but they all unmask what's brewing in their hearts. It is the desire to greatness. So Jesus sat them down and taught them about greatness but greatness in the kingdom of God. He tells them, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. That is the kingdom ethic in the kingdom of God. The follower of Jesus is not preoccupied with himself, how to outdo others, how to outshine others. His preoccupation is not to promote himself, but to demote himself to be the very last, to be the servant of all. Isn't that what Jesus has modeled all along for his disciples? He came not to be served, but to serve. And though the Son of God, he did not outshine other nurseries at his birth. His nursery was very unglam. His birth uh, was, the, was humbler than the humblest birth. And though the Son of God, he did not outdo others with his economic status, he belonged to the family of a carpenter. Though he was the disciples' Lord and Master, he demoted himself to a servant and knelt down to wash their stinky, dirty feet. If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. And so to further illustrate his point, Jesus took a child and had the child stand among them. And now it is important for us to understand that in Jesus' time, children in the honor scale are ranked quite low. They are regarded as insignificant and oftentimes ignored. Now this is very much unlike our society today where everybody stops to listen to the child at home. When the child creates a lot of noise, we do not tell them off because we fear that it may stunt their growth. It may, it may stunt their emotional growth or their mental growth. Our children today rank very high up in the honor scale, but not so in the first century. Hence, Jesus tells the disciples, 
whoever welcomes one of this these little one little children in my name welcomes me and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me so jesus is saying do not belittle the little children the nobodies and alluding to the disciples as his little children they are not to belittle one another but to be servant to be a servant to one another they are to treat all followers of jesus as significant because jesus treats them as significant none of these i am greater you are lesser mindsets because in god's kingdom one must not seek to be great but lowliness even to aspire servanthood and when we stop seeing others as nobodies we will value their well-being we will value their spiritual well-being for jesus says in verse 42 whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea we must care for the delicate and sensitive faith of the little ones in jesus and be mindful not to cause them to stumble by what we do our hands where we go our feet and what we look at our eyes the lord is going to hold us all accountable so i said that our society today puts a high value on children well that is the case when it pertains to their education when it pertains to their health but sadly not so much when it pertains to their spirituality so parents be watchful not to discourage or deter your children from embracing the faith be mindful that your words and actions display kingdom values and model trust faith and obedience in jesus so is your language filled with grace do your actions reflect contentment in god's provision are you generous in forgiving showing god's richness in mercy our children's spirituality is not something to be belittled we must welcome them into the kingdom and care enough not to cause them to stumble moving on to the last incident verse 38 teacher said john teacher we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we uh, tried to stop him because he was not following us now as you can see the disciples still did not get it G uh, john acted as if he was concerned that people who use the name of jesus must really know jesus as they did but actually he was just being very exclusive he thought that the 12 were the exclusive certified ghost busters he did not want others to be performing the works they did the disciples wanted to have the monopoly on exorcisms and so told this unidentified man to stop because this man did not have the quote franchise quote they didn't he did not receive training from jesus himself and therefore this man must have no part in god's work and john told the man to stop 
and even gladly reported to Jesus how he somehow upheld stringent quality standards when it comes to casting out demons. Did he forget the nine disciples apparently just failed? Well, Jesus, however, replied, verse 39, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. And here Jesus continues to teach them the same kingdom ethic, not to seek greatness and, and exclusivity, but to be inclusive, inclusive to welcome other followers outside the circle of 12. The disciples are to embrace other Jesus followers, even if they do not belong to the 12. The disciples are to welcome them and not oppose them because they do the works of Christ and are not in opposition to Christ. In verses 42 to 48, Jesus reiterates the kingdom value of welcoming the nobodies and being watchful of causing them not to sin. He warns how sin invites the fires of hell. Then Jesus tells them, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, he says, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. You see that in verses 49 to 50. The Lord must be using fire here to bring up a different point. And here he is likely referring to the fires of persecution and suffering that every believer in Christ will face. For everyone, Jesus says, will be salted with fire. Everyone will be seasoned with fire. Now this theme of suffering picks up from uh, Jesus' teaching in verse 31 when he says that the Son of Man is going to suffer and be killed and rise after three days. At this teaching, we were told, the disciples did not understand. Furthermore, they were afraid to ask Jesus about it. Is it because the death of the Messiah does not gel well with their visions of greatness? Yes, it doesn't. If it were visions of worldly greatness, that is. But you see, there is a place for kingdom greatness. And the transfiguration account gives us a sneak preview of the glory that Jesus will receive once he is taken up to heaven, just as Elijah was taken up just as Moses was taken up, as the Jews traditionally believed. There will be glory. There will be reward. There will be greatness. But now is not the time, because the servant king has to go through suffering and death for our salvation. Going through suffering and following Jesus is actually what should preoccupy the disciples' minds instead of worldly greatness. Then they'll be concerned how to spur one another in the faith as they go through the fire together. To have salt in yourselves is to possess preserving qualities that battle against moral decay. Now some even say it could be language of having meals together. But the point is 
So long as we keep this quality in us, we will aim to be at peace with one another. Because we will no longer battle against one another for greatness. Instead, we will be serving one another in humility. The kingdom of God, my friends, is like a reverse nut. It's countercultural. Greatness is to be the least. The first will be last. And as followers of Jesus, we should aspire to be least and last, to be children, to be servants, to be unknown, to care little about greatness. So if the disciples had cared little about their greatness, you know what's, what should have happened? In exercising the evil spirit, they would have prayed to underscore their limitations, their helplessness, and instead spotlight God's ability, God's power. Because everything is possible for everyone who believes, Jesus says. If the disciples had cared little about their greatness, they would have welcomed little children, the nobodies, and give importance to their delicate faith getting rid of whatever that may cause them to stumble. If the disciples had cared little about their greatness, they could have cared less about their perceived status, whether part of the twelve or not. All who believe in Jesus have access to him, and all who believe in Jesus are partners in the work of bringing the gospel and furthering his kingdom. If the disciples had cared little about their greatness, they would battle against falling away because of suffering. They would spur one another in the faith and promote peace and unity because they are together fighting the same war, battling against sin and unbelief. You know, I, re I read this passage and I am thankful that the Bible or God is no respecter of persons. The embarrassing exposés about the disciples are written for our self-reflection and for our warning, lest we are entrapped into chasing greatness. We just do not talk about it because it's embarrassing. Yet, we may quietly scheme, plan, and chart our path, path rather, to prominence. You know, one of the ways we guard our greatness is by stifling the gifts of others. Example, you could be a Bible study leader in ARPC. It's called the DG leader. You could be a leader who's always leading the study but never giving your co-leaders a chance to bless the group with their gifts. You do not because that will dilute your authority. That will weaken your leadership and diminish your greatness. And so you guard your position and your role tightly and not allow others to replicate your work. You are like John, the Apostle John, who prohibited the unnamed disciple from driving out demons, though that unnamed exorcist may have a higher success rate than the disciples. Listen to Jesus. Do not stop him, he says. For the one who is not against us is for us. Listen to Jesus and give up feeling 
exclusive. Another way we promote our greatness is by dreading obscurity and even despising obscurity. Say we do not like serving in the background. We do not want ministry that does not get us the spotlight or ministry that, you know, in our minds have a, somehow a low return of investment. Why? Because we love numbers. Numbers somehow reflect our greatness because we adore being under the stage lights. And so each time we serve, we make sure everybody knows about it. We take a wee fee. We announce it. I did this. I did that. We want to be seen and known. We pursue worldly greatness. You know, in our church, we have a few elders' wives who uh, serve in obscurity. They visit the ill, the depressed, the abandoned, all without much publicity. And I admire their service to the Lord. And I am assured that they who come in the name of the Lord will be greatly rewarded. When we pursue servanthood instead of greatness, we will embrace and delight obscurity. But when we chase greatness and find ourselves stuck in obscurity, you know what happens? We may even deceive ourselves or console ourselves to think of obscurity as God's humbling work just for the meantime, in the interim, in order to prepare us for greatness, for fame, for stardom. I mean, Name any celebrity, pastor, or preacher today. That is usually the tagline. He will say that he started, you know, as an obscure preacher in a small church with a small congregation because little did he know that God was preparing him for greatness. This reveals his pursuit of worldly greatness under the guise of God's blessing. God help us. God save us from this vain pursuit. Jesus says, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. For servanthood is the role Jesus took. He came to serve and, not, and, and give his life as a ransom so that you and I, if you and I believe in the humble Son of God, your sins will be forgiven and you will be in his kingdom where the last will be first, the least great, because of God's grace and generosity. God bless you, and may He empower us to give up our pursuit of greatness and instead pursue humility, because the kingdom of God is like a reverse knot. Amen.